would like this to be as informal as possible. Um, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for being here. I know that it is, uh, it's probably a hard thing to do on a warm afternoon and I know there are lots of other seminars and lots of other temptations. So thank you for coming to this. Can I ask how many of you are familiar with the South African Truth Commission in any way? So, at least, at least some of you, okay. So what I'm going to do is assume a little bit of, of, of working knowledge of it, but if anybody feels like uh, that, you know, that there's crucial information that I've omitted, don't be shy to stop me. We're a sufficiently small group, let's just have an informal conversation, okay. So this paper, um, I've, I've worked on the Truth Commission over a number of years, and um, I had sort of stopped uh, uh, a few years ago, and then I got invited to a conference which was on expertise in truth commissions, uh, which I actually found a very interesting question. The question of, in a, in a truth commission, who is deemed to have the appropriate expertise to undertake what is going to be a very contentious and quite politically complex task of adjudicating what a truth commission is intended to do. So I, I decided to write a paper for the conference, which I did. Um, I ended up not going to the conference for various reasons, and uh, then set the paper aside. But given what's been going on in South Africa in the last two years, and especially last year in the universities, and the ascendancy of identity politics, um, especially a racial identity politics, I was interested in returning to the paper. And the reason that I returned to it was because I did a series of interviews around the question of expertise. I interviewed people who'd been working in the commission, the commissioners and the researchers, and I was asking them about expertise. But unexpectedly, I was quite surprised to find that a lot of what they kept on returning to was the question of race. So. It's that, it's that question which I found unexpectedly and which I want to revisit um, in respect of, of, of the Truth Commission. Okay, all right, so. Who can write history and on whose behalf? And by what means? These are vexed and contentious questions in many post-colonial settings, not least in South Africa. In 1995, South Africa's newly democratic parliament passed a law which established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission was mandated to produce an official history of gross human rights violations in the country from 1960 to 1993. Its purpose would be in passing authoritative judgment on what had happened during this slighted period and to do so on behalf of the fledgling democratic nation as a performance of its aspiration to reconcile. Indeed, as an act of reconciliation in what was imagined as an ongoing journey along that path. In other words, here was a confident assertion of the prerogative, in fact, the responsibility, to write an authoritatively truthful history of a very fraught past on behalf of none less than the nation as a whole. So how did the TRC manage and present and manage the politics of authority and representation that attended this exercise? Who was 
vested with the legitimate authority to hear and interpret and pass judgment on this violent and divisive history, and on what grounds? Okay, so that's, that's the question that I'm posing for this paper, and I'm revisiting the TRC through the prism of that question, and I'm posing it both apropos the explicit practice and the tacit assumptions and de facto realities of the process. In adjudicating brutally contested periods of history, truth commissions are by nature precarious undertakings. All the more so if the conflicts are not fully resolved at the inception of the commission, which was the case with the South African Truth Commission. So the credibility of those authorized to undertake the task is therefore critical to incarnate the rigor, the objectivity, and the integrity of the process as a whole. Truth commissions have approached this challenge in different ways. So consider the case of the Guatemalan Truth Commission. It was established in 1994 to produce the truth about human rights violations that had been committed during a very long and bloody civil war in that country from 1962 to the early 1990s. And it was a conflict that was ended through a peace accord that had been brokered by the United Nations. So this, this Guatemalan Commission was undertaken in terms very typical to the genre of the Truth Commission. That is to authorize truth as a process considered necessary for national reconciliation. Its name it was called the Historical Clarification Commission, made its primary purpose abundantly clear. This was to be an exercise in robustly objective historical investigation. And in this instance, Enacting reconciliation, although that was the goal, would not fall within the purview of the commission itself. So in this case, there were three commissioners. The chair of the commission was appointed by the UN, by the Secretary General of the UN, and he was a foreigner. He was a man called Christian Tomoschacht. He was a German law professor with expertise in international law. He, in turn, appointed the two other commissioners, both of whom were Guatemalan. One was a jurist and the other considered an expert on Mayan issues, but not Mayan herself. Appointed with the agreement of the government and the Mayan rebels, both party to the negotiated peace agreement. The chair made his selection of these two commissioners from a list of names proposed by Guatemalan university presidents, which, as some commentators remarked, gave an air of objectivity to the work of the commission. The elevated and detached standing of the academy signified by invoking it at its apex, that is in the person of the university president, connoted the kind of expertise that was valorized for the clarification of a troubled history, that is the sobriety of detached educated rigor. Indeed, the mandate of the commission required it not to pass judgment on the past, but simply to clarify what had happened in the period with, quote, objectivity, equity, and impartiality. Okay, now, it's interesting to keep that in mind, because the South African Truth Commission could not have been more different from that. In South Africa, the exercise of truth-telling would require, in the first instance, the expertise of commissioners who had been immersed in the local history, not detached from it whose wisdom therefore derived from their proximity to, not their distance from, the histories about which they were pronouncing, 
and whose expertise would lie in their ethical and emotional standing rather than in their technical knowledge. So very, very different kind of exercise. So to understand why, I want to just give you a little bit more of a context of what the TRC was trying to do and why it had to re why it reimagined expertise and authority in these very different ways. So the TRC was central to how South Africa's transition from apartheid, from the authoritarianism of apartheid, to democratic constitutionalism was fashioned after 19, 1994. And it should be understood in relation to the epistemological and ethical underpinnings of that process. Okay, so, a strong sense of the country's history as a litany of damage infiltrated, sort of permeated the way democracy, the democratic project, was constituted and depicted. Okay. Um, the past was seen as a site of wounding, okay. one of pain, of violation, and a loss of human dignity. So in, in, in recovering the truth about gross human rights violations, the TRC would therefore also entail a project of healing. Okay, so this, this idea of healing became very central to the Truth Commission. The Truth Commission would attend to the damage, the wounding done to individuals, to interpersonal relationships, and to the nation as a whole. And this was to be the basis of similarly multi-layered processes of reconciliation, so culminating at least symbolically in the aspiration to national reconciliation. Now from an ethical point of view, this idea of reconciliation was a humanist impulse born of the emphatic affirmation of a shared humanity. It was the affirmation that notwithstanding what had happened in apartheid, where you know, white people were judged to have been you know, more uh, of greater value than black people. Here was an affirmation of the fact that everybody had a shared humanity of equal dignity and of equal value. But reconciliation was also predicated on an acknowledgement of difference, okay, in that sort of very familiarly multiculturalist way. So we had, a, a, we had an abiding metaphor for this. Um, South Africans, after 1994, spoke about the nation as a rainbow. Okay, so, you know, uh, all the different colors of the rainbow could be accommodated under the rubric of one nation. Okay. So, as I say, the familiar multiculturalist axiom of unity through difference, in the recognition of difference. Differences of race, of, ethnic of ethnicity, of gender, sexuality, culture, etc. Okay, so, Reconciliation would be achieved not by obliterating these differences, but by acknowledging them and stripping them of the violent hierarchies that apartheid had imbued in them in the past. And then we had another, we had a concept of Ubuntu, which uh, is a uniquely South African idea, so-called, which gave an indigenous name to the humanist aspiration that would then glue this nation, this rainbow nation, together. A nation of human mutuality said to have endured from South Africa's pre-colonial past. Okay, so that was, in a, that's sort of in a nutshell what the reconciliation project involved. The TRC was to be the central institutional driver of this project of reconciliation. And it was duly appointed by, by the National Parliament in 1995, and it began its proceedings in 1996 
with a mere two years to complete its task and to deliver a full written report, okay, which was a very short time, and that becomes relevant to the story I want to tell. Um, the report ended up, I think it was eight volumes, uh, so it was, it, it was a kind of massive undertaking, and it became very pressurized. So the mandate of this process imagined a process of truth-finding that would draw upon an objective and yet multi-perspectival rendition of the past. Okay, so this is the epistemological part, and it's quite important to explain how paradoxical it was. Okay, to, to draw upon an objective and yet multi-perspectival rendition of the past in ways that would enable and perform processes of healing, understood psychologically, and reconciliation, understood ethically. It would be important for the victims of gross human rights violations to tell their own stories, having been silenced in the past. Indeed, their silence had been one dimension of their violation. And likewise, the perpetrators of these gross human rights violations would be required to testify what they did and why in exchange for the prospect of amnesty from criminal prosecution. And it was understood, given this whole idea about wounding and pain, that truth-telling would be a very emotional process. It would be emotionally cathartic, and that the robust, sort of more forensic part of objective truth-telling would somehow need to acknowledge the subjective truths of people who were speaking in very emotional ways about their pain. Okay. In previous, uh, previous papers and in a book that I wrote about the TRC, I have written a lot about what I call the conundrum of truth that inheres in the genre of the Truth Commission. Okay. Now, Truth Commissions, as, as any of you who study Truth Commissions will know, have a very particular genealogy. They start in the 1970s. The first one was in Argentina in 1973. And then there was a spate of them that happened in the 1980s and into the 1990s and beyond. Okay, so it sort of accelerated. And it most of them were in South America, uh, Latin America. Not all, but, but many of them. And they are part of what um, um, socio-legal theorists have called the international human rights movement. That, that shaped those transitions from authoritarianism to democracy. Um, and those ones that used truth commissions to try and manage that transition in, in peaceful and stable ways. Okay. So what animated the truth commission, what made them possible, was quite a profound confidence in the possibility of truth. If you don't think truth was possible in an objective, confident, unassailable way, then you wouldn't even begin the process of a truth commission. Okay, so fundamental assumption of a truth commission is in the possibility and indeed the power and the importance of truth in a robust sense of the term. But paradoxically, this international human rights movement, this, this sort of genealogy of the truth commission from the 1970s onwards, coincided more or less exactly with the wave of philosophical and popular skepticism about the very possibility of truth that has been associated in one way or the way with postmodern and postcolonial thinking. Okay, now, so let me just briefly sketch what that skepticism was about because it becomes important. Skeptical critiques of truth-telling are not new, okay, of course, 
But the growing power of postmodern theorizing from the late 1970s produced a singularly stinging critique of modern absolute notions of truth. The roots of this skepticism were nurtured both by the flourishing of social constructivist philosophies in the wake of the linguistic turn and the hermeneutics of suspicion associated with post-colonial critiques of enlightenment thinking. If the world of experience is textually constituted, then claims to knowledge of what lies outside these texts becomes incoherent, and the pursuit of truth becomes a journey through the circuits of discourse, signposted by degrees of internal coherence rather than claims to correspondence with an objective reality. And if, following Foucault, the production of discourse is inseparable from the exercise of power, then those discourses that generate an absolute universalizing notion of truth become the locus of a political critique as the symptom of a will to power, that is, the power to constitute truth on behalf of others. So with this destabilization of claims to truth has come a comparable rethinking of the idea and the practice of history debunking the figure of the authoritative impartial historian and installing in his place a ritually reflective, reflexive, self-critical reader of the past, mindful of the pluralities of perspective and the effects of power in the production of her historical evidence. Okay. So in other words, what I'm saying is the Truth Commission, with its you know, robust confidence in the possibility of truth, arises paradoxically in a milieu where exactly that idea has come under very strong philosophical critique. It's also true to say that these scholarly philosophical shifts have seeped into the popular imagination too. And I think they are, you, you see it most strongly now. I mean, you hear about Trump, you know, the sort of post-truth stuff, the alternative facts. Well, that's pretty much exactly what you know, most versions of postmodern philosophy were saying. Okay. So as a consequence, and that you know, Trump is a version of a, a kind of a, a kind of parody in a way of a philosophical position which, which predates him by some decades. But what this means is that the claim to truth under the auspices of a body as official and authoritative as a truth had to have acquired an epistemological complexity and an aura of suspicion that, would, that the practitioners of the Truth Commission would have to address. And that was no less the case with the South African TRC as with many others. And in this case, all the more so because this process was imagined as being so emotional and so replete with pain and with the, 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 the telling of pain and therefore the emotional unassailability of individual testimony. Now, unusually, the South African Truth Commission tried, it was retrospective, so it was sort of post-talk when they were writing this massive report. There's a, a section in one report that says, and so what about truth? What, what of truth? And they tried to grapple with this concept, which I think is the only Truth Commission, bizarrely, that has actually done that. You'd think it would be kind of, you know, kind of, 101 for, for truth commissioners, what is truth? Not so, but the South African Commission did that and it came up with, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but a completely ridiculous answer to that question. Very, you know, for any kind of philosopher, completely unpersuasive. They said there were five types of truth and they had a bit of each of them. 
Um, so I'm not going to go into it because it, it's, it's a detail that doesn't matter for the purposes of this paper, but you need to know that, it, that there was a great anxiety in the process about the very idea of truth itself. Okay, now, in the report, the anxiety attached to the, the sort of what of the truth-telling. What were we finding? You know, in what does the truth consist? Whose truth? Okay. What my paper found was the extent to which that conundrum, okay, that, that philosophical enigma about the truth, actually attached to the people who were listening to and processing all of that, all of that evidence. And they started to doubt amongst themselves who was best qualified to hear that truth and to make sense of it. Okay, so I'll tell you now, having contextualized that, I'll tell you now, and we'll get, we'll get much more concrete about how this process worked. Okay, now, one of the features of South Africa's TRC that, that many others have since emulated, but this South Africa was the first to conduct the Truth Commission primarily through a series of public hearings. Okay, there were, that was the most public, the most memorable aspect of the TRC. If you ask most South Africans, have they even seen the seven-volume report? They haven't. They don't even know it exists. What they know was the hearings, and the hearings were televised on TV, on, on national television, and they were very emotional, lots of crying, lots of um, very hard, brutal realities that were confirmed through testimony by perpetrators, testimony through victims. So the, 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 the hearings were very important in trying to show here was a commission that was alert to the very subjective, very partial perspectives of people who'd been violated. Um, on the part of people who were listening to them, but were also trying to fathom what actually happened in the middle of all of this. Okay. And this was presided over, this whole very symbolically powerful process was presided over by a series of commissioners. Archbishop Tutu, you may, some of you may know, was the chair of this. Very charismatic, very emotional, amazing chair of this. And he was Archbishop of Cape Town, of the Anglican Church at the time. So, how were these commissioners selected? Okay, to come back to, to my question. How, how was it? How were they selected? Okay, now this was, because of the importance of the commissioners, this was a very public, very carefully scrutinized process. And it was Nelson Mandela, who was then president, who oversaw the process, and he was very involved in it. Okay, so what he did was he issued a public call for nominations, and he set up a, a, a selection committee, told the selection committee to produce a short list of 40 people. These 40 people's CVs would be made available for public comment. Be, then all of those 40 people would be interviewed, on, again, on national television. And then the selection committee would produce another short list, a shorter short list of 25 people. And then Mandela and the cabinet would cut that down to 17. They wanted 17 people. Mandela just decided right at the outset, all of the commissioners should be South African. Okay, South Africans must be passing judgment on their own past, didn't want any foreigners involved. And then he sent out, a pu he published a list of the criteria. Okay, so listen to the criteria. They were quite simple. The person, that is the commissioner, should be able to make impartial judgments. 
The person should be of moral integrity with a known commitment to human rights, to reconciliation, and to the disclosure of the truth. The person should not be a high-profile member of a political party. And the person should not be an applicant for amnesty in terms of the legislation. That's all. In other words, the expertise sought here had nothing to do with any technical skill of any kind, no experience in historical analysis, or indeed any other kind of analysis. It was about moral wisdom. Okay? Moral wisdom and a proven predilection to fairness and impartiality, born of good human rights credentials in the country's anti-apartheid struggle. There's also nothing here about the rainbow, you know, nothing here about people should be representative, that they should, you know, stand in for a constituency. This was completely in line with the human rights discourse that underpinned this commission. Okay? It was human qualities that were being sought here, that would be recognizable to all other humans. Okay. So 17 commissioners were appointed. But when you look at the actual process and what went on and how the 17 people were appointed, it becomes clear that, in fact, these were not just the only criteria. That, in fact, the rainbow was absolutely at play in the process. Very careful attention was given to issues of diversity and representation. Alex Borain, who was the deputy chair of it, uh, said triumphantly in his memoir that the 17 commissioners comprised Seven women, ten men. Seven Africans, two coloreds, two Indians, six whites. Okay? They also made sure that people came from different parts of the country, that they had different ethnic affiliations, and they wanted a religious mix. They wanted Christians, they wanted Muslims, they wanted Jews. And they ultimately did have something of a mix of expertise. They mainly had lawyers, health professionals, had lots of doctors and social workers and psychologists, and they had uh, clergy, priests. Not one historian, not one academic of any kind. Okay. All right, so what you have in the appointment process is this rainbow nation, there's the kind of universalism of the human rights project, plus the rainbow nation, in a very not, not very well articulated kind of combination. Then they had to appoint researchers because the TRC also involved a major research operation. Okay. So there's, how, how did they appoint the researchers? So one of the very weird things about the TRC's research process was that it was headed by a theologian. Again, not by, not by a historian. Um, a man called Charles Villavicencio who had a very good working relationship with the deputy chair um, and he ran the show, and in fact, a series of academics, very prominent academics who applied for the job and who were interviewed for the job were told that they were sort of, you know, that they were too rigid, they were too prescriptive, and in fact, the commission had a very ambivalent relationship to historians and to the academy. Okay, so this man, this theologian, then had to appoint a whole series of researchers who were spread across the country in regional offices. And I'll just briefly tell you how that appointment process worked. So that people had to, people had to be interviewed, they had to submit CVs, um, and the commissioners made the final decision. And according to one of the people I interviewed, he says the process was, quote, very political. 
people had very strong views about who was on the side of the angels. If you were a well-known Afrikaner academic who had supported the National Party, then you couldn't be appointed. The commissioners were looking for good people whose writings had shown that they were, they were for truth and reconciliation. In other words, the researchers themselves also had to have that quality of moral wisdom and good struggle credentials. Okay. All right, so that was in theory. That was the, 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 the theory. Both the researchers and the commissioners were appointed in some kind of not very well articulated combination of being good human beings and being representative of different constitutions. Okay, so how did it work out in practice? The everyday life of the commission, remember they only had two years. It was very pressurized, very stressful, very conflictual. Everybody told me that. And they were unsurprised. They were not surprised because they had this very ambitious mandate with too little time. The commissioners and the researchers all said that they were learning on the job and they were constantly scrambling to get things done. There were lots of conflicts, ideological conflicts, turf battles, personality conflicts. The chair, and uh, sorry, the, the deputy chair, um, a man called Alex Berain, and the head of the research, those two guys were friends and they worked very well together, and they basically ran the show. Now that was their job, that was what they were tasked to do, but they got up virtually everybody's nose, they got up people's backs because they were perceived as being very controlling. The issue of productivity and competence was very conflictual. There were lots of complaints about commissioners who didn't deliver, about researchers who weren't properly qualified, about commissioners who were just interested in the TV, in the, in the media fanfare rather than doing their job. All kinds of complaints that people were not delivering as they should. Now, for those of you who know anything about South Africa, South Africa is the most racialized country in the entire world. So it should come as no surprise whatsoever that all of these, pretty much all of these conflicts became racialized. As one of the commissioners said to me, race was always an underlying issue. Okay. Everybody agreed, but they all did stress that the eruptions around it were uneven and intermittent. So I don't want to overstate this. Okay. I'm not saying that people were fighting about racial um, issues all the time, 24-7, but this was an underlying issue. And what we were, what were in retrospect, when you look at the TRC, you can see that the, this, this commission was the earliest sign of what has now become a fully, a full-blown post-apartheid racial identity politics. This was the first the place where it started. Okay. There were three main areas of contention, three sides of argument. The first was epistemological, the question of truth, history, and ownership thereof. One of the commissioners, a, a doctor, a woman called Wendy Orr, said to me, and I'm quoting, as a white commissioner, she said, I was made to feel it. I was told that I wasn't black enough to have understood the suffering we went through. She wasn't the only one. Others also told me that they, had, that they were told by some of the black commissioners in the commission that they, didn't, that they should listen in the hearings, sit quietly, and that they shouldn't participate actively because they wouldn't know what kinds of questions to ask because they had not been privy to the sufferings that they were hearing about. 
One of the, uh, in, in South Africa we have a very particular racial nomenclature, and I'm using the racial nomenclature of the place, all right? So we distinguish between, well, we, the country, distinguishes between Africans um, and coloreds. Coloreds are people of mixed race. Okay, so colored commissioners also told me that they were accused by black African commissioners that they were not black enough to understand the suffering of the, of the African people who were testifying. One of these commissioners said to me that as she saw it, the dominant view, given the context and mandate of the TRC, was indeed that the lived experience as a black person made a difference to the performance of the commission and had to be acknowledged. I had a long interview with Alex Moran, the deputy chair of the commission, and he said, perhaps in retrospect, that he had to concede that. In fact, he made a remarkable statement to me in the interview. He said to me, being black in South Africa was expertise. Just an extremely, <laughs> an extremely powerful version of expertise that flew entirely in the face of what supposedly um, the commission had been looking for in the person of its, of its commissioners. And at no point in the TRC's process was that version of expertise actually explicitly articulated with or thought through in relation to what they said they were looking for. I had a discussion with one of the researchers, a guy called Chief Madizela, who was appointed to the Cape Town office, and he said, and he agreed, he said, I came to the TRC thinking that I had the experience because I've gone through the suffering, but not thinking that I was appointed because of that. But then he made an interesting point. He said, I thought I could relate to the evidence because of my experience. But then I realized later that I only had theoretical understanding, not the real thing, because my degree of suffering was far less than the suffering of the, of the, um, of the people who were testifying, which is a point I'll come back to later. Okay, there were also arguments about the, right, the history writing process. Who could write the report? Okay. In theory, it shouldn't matter. In theory, the researchers who've done the research should write the report. In fact, there were lots of tensions, sometimes flaring up into arguments, about one, what one of the black researchers said called, quote, too many white hands tinkling on the keyboards. For many of the whites involved, this was painful and also a shock. They had been activists centrally involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, specifically in the United Democratic Front, which they, which represented itself and which they had experienced as a non-racial space. So they considered themselves comrades amongst others. And in fact, these were the struggle credentials on the strength of which they were appointed to the TRC. Uh, one of the researchers, a woman called Nikki Uso, told me when I interviewed her that she was completely dismayed to discover that in the eyes of her peers, she was Mkrungu, okay? in other words, white person. And one of the others said to me likewise that she had to recognize that she perceived herself as an activist, but the other, research other researchers just saw her as a white person. There were also arguments about power and control. There was a perception that the, com that the commission was being run by a white cabal. Again, I told you that the two men who were driving the process, Borain and Villavicencio, were good friends, they worked well together, they drove the show, but they were perceived as being kind of very domineering. 
And in most instances, that was a perceived to be a consequence of their being white. At one point in the, in the Truth Commission, sometime in the first year, Archbishop Tutu was diagnosed with cancer, and he went into hospital. And as a consequence, Bahrain had to actually become the acting chair. And at that point, the accusations of the commission being run by a white cabal became public. And there was an end to the public, the media, and there was a public spat about it. And Archbishop Tutu actually had to issue a statement from the hospital, from his bedside, to say that he remained in charge and that he was offended by the implication that he couldn't do his job properly. Chief Mabazela, one of the researchers I interviewed, said to me that in fact, although this was not well articulated, several black researchers felt, as he put it, patronized and marginalized, although he excluded himself from that group. One of the commissioners said to me that given the pressure of time, Borain and Vincencio tended to work most closely with the people that they knew best and trusted. And typically, these were white people. Okay, now, there were different interpretations of this. Some people thought it was circumstantially racial. Other people thought that it was racially motivated. Okay, I was told by one of the commissioners that the perception of a white cabal running the show was actually strongest in the Western Cape, not surprisingly, but it had a national impact. He said in national meetings, people would align politically or along lines of racial solidarity. Then thirdly, perhaps the most bitterly argued site of conflagration was the question of competence and delivery. Okay, with again, racially very different versions of the problem. One view was that many black commissioners and black researchers felt that they were being pushed aside in preference for white staff who were perceived as being more competent. In the case of the research staff, black researchers felt that they were being marginalized, one person said to me, because they didn't write as well. And therefore, they were being restricted, given the pressure of time, they say, to preparing briefing notes and not taking primary responsibility for the, for the finished product. Another view was that while black staff weren't delivering, which made it a rational, some black staff went to the ring, which made it a rational default position to favor a white researcher on the assumption that they would deliver more effectively. Okay. Whatever, I'm not, I'm not adjudicating, I'm just presenting these conflicting narratives um, because they were both there. And as one of the commissioners commented to me, and I quote, the question of competence was not an easy discussion. It's easy to say that people were not delivering when you don't give them the responsibility. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, so you get a sense that you know this was this was actually quite a fractious undertaking, and the issue of race was at the center of it. But dealing with these racial tension was was difficult, particularly if there was a risk of it going public, because as Wendy Orr put it to me. And I quote, if we were going to reconcile the country, remember that was the job of the TRC, we couldn't show that we couldn't reconcile ourselves. At one point, she did suggest getting a facilitator in to the Cape Town office to deal with what she called relationship issues. <laughs> but Tutu absolutely refused. He said uh, that, that these issues should be dealt with in-house. On one occasion, however, things did get sufficiently volatile for the redeployment of a man called Tulani Grenville Gray, 
who was a clinical psychologist and who had been appointed actually as the reparations committee secretary. But he was called in to one of the uh, research offices to deal with what one of the researchers called a race explosion. And he ran a session to allow for the airing of grievances, which seems to have contained things somewhat after that. Okay, so to wrap up, the TRC did deliver after two years. They delivered a seven volume report. Um, they drew to a close without any serious breach, be it on lines of race or anything else, which surely was an accomplishment. And I think the TRC did contribute in its way to the performance of a non-racial non project, fragile though it was. But it seems to me it's not accidental that the flare-ups that did occur were located at the points of tension that inhered in the imaginary of the TRC both epistemologically and empathy. That is around the question of the relationship between objectivity and subjectivity in truth-telling, and the relationship between the human universalism that uh, somehow inspired the project, and the question of difference, and the ways in which difference impacted on people's capacities to, to deliver on their mandate. Okay. So, what, is, what, what can one take for this, perhaps in relation to the prospect of future truth commissions? Because South Africa has always been something of a role model um, for, for truth commissions that have developed elsewhere in the world, and they still continue to be appointed. We had our truth commission in South Africa in the very early days of the non-racial project. It was a very hopeful time, it was a very open time, it was a very joyous time, and Mandela presided as this symbol of the possibility that we could imagine a racial order where people could cohabit differently in, in a kind of harmonious way. So given that that was the dream and that that was the sort of so-called miracle, the honeymoon moment of our democracy, perhaps Tutu's reluctance in facing these racial issues was understandable. Okay. But the result was that a series of important conversations, difficult conversations, did not happen, and perhaps they should have. And what might these, some of these conversations have been? Well, certainly in relation to the question of truth. What is the relationship between truth and experience? Because of this kind of inarticulate, un inarticulate kind of unspecified mishmash of subjective and objective different notions of truth, there wasn't really an engagement with the question is it the case that in order to understand somebody's situation, you have to have had direct experience of it? That became simply a premise of the people who were making the case for the positionality of, of, of truth finding. Is it the case? That is, of course, the premise now of the kind of identity politics that universities are, are becoming um, much more involved with. And if it is the case that you need to have experienced somebody, uh, something in order to understand it, then I might go back to the, the comment that Chief Mother Seller made to me. You know, he, was, he was black. He thought that he knew what it was like to have suffered. When he got into the commission, he discovered actually he hadn't suffered nearly enough. So how much experience is necessary in order to understand? Okay? And is it necessary at all? Under what conditions might distance 
deliver an understanding that is unattainable to those who are absolutely invigorated. These questions, it seemed to me, are the kinds of questions that, that, that a, a, a reflection on the Truth Commission should be queued to those who want to undertake these kinds of exercises in the future. Thanks for listening.